Thanks, Kelly. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. My name is Ria Pereira. I'm the supervising attorney with the Pennsylvania Utility Law Project. Joining me today is Lauren Berman, an attorney with the Pennsylvania Utility Law Project. And today we're here to talk about spring training for utility law advocates and really give you guys some updates and tools taking you into the spring to help with utility customers and your clients' utility needs. So for those of you who do not already know us. We are PULP. We focus on low-income residential utility and energy affordability in the state. We represent the interests of low-income residential utility consumers across the state. We, across the state, I should say, we provide training such as this one. We also provide technical assistance and support to legal aid and nonprofit community groups. And we'll provide you some information at the end of uh, this presentation, specifically of how to contact us if you have some uh, thorny utility questions that you need some assistance with. And I believe someone asked if the PowerPoint will be shared and to answer this, I think the answer is yes, that Kelly will be sharing this after the presentation. <laughs> so uh, to give everyone just a kind of lay of the land where we're going to be going, first we're going to be talking about some updates to the current LIHEAP season, we're going to be talking about some temporary relief programs, really an acknowledgement and as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're also going to be talking about universal service programs and giving you guys some updates related to those as well. Next, we'll be talking about tools for preventing termination and restoring services. And then we'll be talking about some special protection specifically for some vulnerable populations and specific subsets of customers. So at the outset, just laying the land, the winter moratorium ends this week. So uh, taking the weekend into consideration, terminations may begin as of Monday, April 4th. So what is the winter moratorium first? Uh, the winter moratorium is a moratorium on utility terminations from December 1st to March 31st for low-income households. Now, some caveats or some rules that I want to give you related to the winter moratorium first, uh, to the bar, the maximum for the winter moratorium is going to be set at 250% the FPL or below. So the other uh, caveat here is, is it's going to apply to gas, electric, and heat-related water service. And the example we always give of heat-related water service is regularly radiator heating systems, which require water. Now, the other kind of caveat here is that there's no guarantee of restoration of service if service is already off. It's a winter moratorium and utility termination. Right. And the final caveat that's not on the slide I just wanted to provide is when we're talking about the winter moratorium, a lot of times we're going to be talking about those larger regulated utilities that are under the jurisdiction of the PUC. So for those of you who have questions about municipal authorities, things like that, uh, definitely let us know if you run into a utility issue that you uh, can't resolve and we'll provide you some extra guidance uh, related to that as well. So some tools taking us in or out of, I should say, the winter moratorium and into uh, the rest of the year. First, we're going to be talking about the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, otherwise known as LIHEAP. So LIHEAP, some basics, we're going to be going into this in a little more depth in uh, future present or future slides, I should say. But first, uh, LIHEAP is administered through DHS. The season is running a little bit longer this year. It's going to end uh, as of May 6th this year. 
And we're going to be going into each of these different kind of subcomponents in a little more detail, but just giving you the lay of the land again, uh, cash grants are going to be set for this program season at a minimum of $500. Uh, crisis grants, and we'll talk about again what that is uh, in the upcoming slides, is going to be up to $1,200. The important thing is that if uh, there is multiple crisis situations meeting the requirements we're going to be talking about, the person may receive multiple grants. And there's also a crisis interface component, and we're going to be talking about exactly what this means, but it's really for emergency heater repair and replacement. So uh, some general uh, application tips is uh, you can apply for LIHEAP through either the county assistance offices or through the Compass portal. We do recommend whenever possible applying through that Compass portal specifically because the person at the end of the application might receive a preliminary eligibility determination that might help streamline that process. The other component that we talked about, that crisis interface component for that uh, furnace repair or replacement, it's applying through the COA, but the local WAP agency will perform the work. So just heads up about that as well. So first, let's talk about LIHEAP cash grants. So some of the eligibility criteria we're going to break down here. First, let's talk about household income. For purposes of LIHEAP, household income is going to be capped at 150% FPL or below. So income can be measured in a, a number of ways. So it can be measured either as uh, the month before or 12 months before the application, whichever benefits the client, whichever benefits the customer. So this is especially important for those uh, customers, those clients who have experienced seasonal income shifts, who've experienced uh, differences throughout the year in terms of employment or income levels. If they're right on that 150% FPL line, it could be especially important in order to get them LIHEAP assistance. So next big bucket of uh, eligibility criteria for cash we're going to talk about is a home heating responsibility. And this specifically means a responsibility for the main source of heat. Now, this can have a few different nuances. Uh, a lot of times the utility companies uh, will communicate with that CAO to verify heating responsibility. In the case of tenants, it, it does require a, a lot of times landlord verification or a lease that has that provision that shows that the person is responsible for a main source of heat through rent. There's a lot of uh, nuances and kind of differentiations, whether it's going to be a designated portion of their rent or whether it's an undesignated portion of their rent based on uh, what the lease term or the landlord verification says. Uh, if people want more information, please do let us know and we can walk you through some of those nuances. For uh, purposes of the cash grant, the tenant will, especially if it's not an undesignated, I should say, be eligible for that 50% of that cash grant amount. So in terms of the next big bucket of eligibility criteria for cash grants, let's talk about residency. You know, the definition for residency for purposes of LIHEAP is that the household members permanently reside in Pennsylvania. There's a little quirk, if you will, that we like to mention for recreational vehicles. So those are those campers or RVs. They can still qualify for LIHEAP in terms of this residency requirement. If the uh, RV camper recreational vehicle is there in that licensed facility year round. So it's within the state year round. <clears throat> so let's talk about some of the eligibility criteria for crisis grants. Now, the first three should look very familiar to you because we just talked about them. So it's that household income, that home heating responsibility, and that residency requirement. It's going to be the same for cash as it is for crisis. 
in addition, in order to qualify for a LIHE crisis grant, there has to be a crisis. So there has to be an actual or imminent home heating emergency. Now, this can be shown in a number of ways. So the most likely one that uh, you're going to run into or you're going to run into time and time again is really showing through that termination notice. And especially at the end of the winter moratorium when people are renewing and getting termination notices new, this can be a very important kind of showing and consideration to, uh, to be aware of. The other thing is for those deliverable fuel type customers, you can show that crisis through 15 days or less of deliverable fuel. And that's going to apply to those oil, propane, wood or coal uh, utility customers. Uh, so it, it, the other caveat or eligibility requirement we want to give for crisis is that the grant has to resolve the crisis. Now, here's a point of advocacy, because the utility may accept less than the total amount that's shown, especially on that termination notice. But uh, you can uh, reach out the utility and let us know if people are having issues or need more information about this and advocate for uh, some lesser, potentially reduced amount. The other advocacy tip around here that's not on the slide is that it's not necessarily uh, taken by itself. So uh, LIHEAP crisis funds can be taken in conjunction with other funding. So we're going to be talking about hardship funding in a few slides that's specifically offered through utilities, but specifically it can be coupled with other funding in order to resolve uh, that crisis and meet that criteria and that showing. So crisis interface program uh, that I mentioned before, and this is really for furnace repair and replacement. So it's for the emergency repair or replacement of inoperable heating systems. And there are a few caveats related to this as well. The heating system must have been operable within the last two years. In addition, the home must not have been purchased without an inoperable heating system. So there's a number of uh, available benefits and it, it is a little bit of a, a good range in terms of available benefits under uh, the crisis interface program. This can include uh, the repair of a heating system, loan of auxiliary heaters, as well as even providing blankets to kind of get people through that interim phase, uh, repairing gas or other fuel lines, repairing uh, or replacing uh, unoperable uh, heating systems, even repairing hot water heating systems, uh, heating system pipe thawing, as well as things like repairing broken windows, kind of some of those auxiliary Services. So uh, just to make you guys aware of the Clean and Tune pilot program, this is a new pilot program that DCED launched. It's really targeted towards those customers, those consumers who received LIHEAP crisis interface uh, within either the last year or this program year. And it's really uh, geared towards furnace maintenance services. Now, there's a number of other benefits I'm going to talk about in a second that we believe can be encapsulated in this. But uh, it, just to make you guys aware, that they are starting essentially and looking at those uh, people who received emergency furnace repair or replacement through LIHEAP uh, crisis and crisis interface, I should say. So just some numbers to throw at you. Uh, this was funded with a $20 million uh, allocation from DHS to DCD, uh, specifically for weatherization as part of supplemental LIHEAP funds. So like I said, there could be a number of benefits that can be included under this 
uh, umbrella of clean and tune, uh, furnace cleaning, testing, uh, replacement parts and filters can be included, as well as health and safety inspections. It can be particularly important for people with older heating systems, uh, education and instruction related to cleaning and tuning, as well as the installation of basic efficiency and weatherization measures, including programmable thermostats, might all be under kind of the auspices of clean and tune. So for people who are looking for more information, we're recommending that they contact uh, their local weatherization assistance program uh, provider uh, or their local county assistance office for more information. We've provided a link here to uh, give you an agency list. And uh, like I said, this should be uh, distributed afterwards. So hopefully that will be clickable and accessible to you all. <clears throat> and then uh, just some information, the lay of the land going into this coming year and being cognizant that uh, LIHEAP, the regular program year, is uh, ending as of May 6th. So DHS is pro uh, projected at this point to have approximately $55 million in LIHEAP funds remaining as of that May 6th closing date. This is much more than previous years, and part of that is through uh, specifically supplemental LIHEAP funding through the a ARPA. One of the points of advocacy that our organization in conjunction with community legal services uh, is taking uh, in front of DHS is specifically to extend that LIHEAP crisis season through the summer in acknowledgement of people's ongoing utility needs through the summer and really um, issuing supplemental grants to, uh, to I should say, vulnerable households. Uh, just something else to be on the horizon, uh, there might be, and looking ahead, there might be some uh, allowance for a summer cooling program to provide uh, cooling equipment to low-income vulnerable households, really, uh, again, with the acknowledgement that uh, people need these services to stay safe in their home, especially through summer as well. Okay, now I am go. oh, I'm sorry, Aria, did you have something oh, else? No, but I was just going to turn it over to you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so I'm going to talk about some of the temporary COVID relief programs and other um, sort of semi-related federal programs that are active now, but may not be ongoing programs. Um, the first is one of the newer ones. This is uh, LIWAP, the Low Income Household Water Assistance Program, similar to LIHEAP, um, but it's new. The program just opened January 4th of this year. Um, eligibility, like I said, is similar to LIHEAP. It's 150% of uh, federal poverty. Uh, the applicant has to have a water or wastewater responsibility, whether that is having the account uh, in their name specifically um, or through a lease agreement being responsible for um, water or wastewater or both. Um, they have to be at risk of termination or have their service off. And I believe we landed that risk of termination just means that they have a past due balance. So you don't necessarily need a shutoff notice, but you would need to have a past due balance. Um, and then the utility in exchange agrees, in exchange for the grant funding, agrees to maintain service for a minimum of 90 days after the grant is received. So that is something that's worked out between the um, LIWAP administrators and the utility themselves. So that's not something that the client has to um, do anything about just to be aware of. And then the benefits here, um, you're 
eligible for up to $2,500 for water and $2,500 for wastewater. So a lot of people will have the same provider for both of those services, in which case you get up to 5,000 total. Um, but if you, for example, have you know PA American for water and then have a municipal wastewater um, authority, you would be eligible for um, $2,500 for each. The one caveat here is that um, unlike LIHEAB, which deals mostly with regulated um, gas and electric, we have in the Commonwealth hundreds, if not thousands of separate municipal, either water authorities or wastewater authorities. Um, and each one of those programs in order for an applicant to be eligible for this grant funding, they have to sign their vendor agreement with the LIWAP program. And we know that a lot have and a lot haven't. So if you have someone that you think would be eligible and you refer them, they should apply even if they don't know if their particular municipal authority has signed up as a vendor because the LIWAP administrators will reach out to that municipal authority, provide the vendor agreement to them. They're not required to sign it, so they're not required to sign up, but that is a point of contact that will happen. So if you're not sure, it's a good idea to have people apply regardless. Um, a couple other uh, temporary programs that are in operation now, and I should clarify, LIWAP is not a recurring program like LIHEAP. As far as we know right now, it's, it's a one and done. So it'll go, I believe, until the money is gone. So, you know, the sooner the better on that. Um, so I think we're all probably fairly familiar with um, the Emergency Rental and Utility Assistance Program with ERAP. Um, I, we do still have people call into our hotline who are not aware that utilities are a part of that just because of the acronym. <laughs> um, so just always something to keep in mind. And so this is for renters who are at or below 80% of the area media income. So much higher than for LIWAP and LIHEAP potentially. Um, we do know that some counties are either out of money are not accepting new applications um, currently of this phase one funding. Phase two funding is being launched. Um, so those counties that are out of money may be getting influxes of new funding. Um, unfortunately, I'm sorry, I'm not entirely sure on the timing of that. It may vary county to county. Um, and one significant difference between phase one and phase two, phase two does not require that the applicant show a reduction in income or an increase in expenses due to COVID. They just have to have been affected during COVID. So it does not have to be COVID, a COVID-related need, just that they've been affected during the last two plus years. Um, and again, like I mentioned, you know, it's generally referred to as rental relief. So a lot of eligible renters may not know that they can get help with just utilities. So if, even if they've kept up to date on their rent and they're behind in their utilities, they should apply. Um, and then newly launched um, a couple months ago is the Pennsylvania Homeowners Assistance Fund. Um, and this eligibility here is homeowners at or below 150% area median income. So again, that's going to be significantly higher than the eligibility limits for LIHEAP and LIWAP. Um, the bulk of the funding in this program is for mortgages and other related costs, but um, households can get up to $3,000 per household for utility bills. Um, I mentioned the vendor agreements before. 
with um, LIWAP may run into some of that here too, um, because I know it's just been difficult to get you know, all the outreach out there to all the different small municipal, I think the large, you know, the large utilities are pretty much on board, the smaller municipal ones, it may be a process. So again, you know, it doesn't cost anything to apply, but, you know, there's no, no guarantee that all, all the municipal services have signed up to be vendors at this point. Um, a couple more things, uh, telecommunication and broadband. So, um, the link at the top there will give you a little bit more information, but just for a quick rundown. So this is uh, $9.25 monthly subsidy for telephone, broadband, or bundled service. Um, you can't use that to pay for equipment, but some providers do offer free phones for low-income households. Um, the benefit is portable to other providers. So if you switch internet or switch cell phone providers, you should be able to transfer that benefit with you. And this is one subsidy per household. So not per household member, but per household. Eligibility is a little bit lower um, income-wise, so 135% federal poverty um, or categorical eligibility. So again, if anyone and anyone in the household receives SNAP, Medicaid, SSI, is in public housing or veteran pension or survivor benefits, they would be categorically eligible for this benefit. Um, so the FCC has indicated that voice only lifeline support is only going to last until December 1st of this year. It was previously December 1st of last year. So if you click on this link at the bottom here to learn a little bit more about lifeline, um, just know in that article, the dates are before it was extended through 2022. So the dates are off, but the, the fact are still, still very good information. Um, and finally, the Affordable Connectivity Program, um, ACP. So this is this provides up to $30 per month for broadband subsidy. Some providers come with a discount, um, a discount with for you know your router um, with some level of copay. That's just going to vary provider to provider. Uh, eligibility for this is a little bit higher. So incomes at or below 200% of federal poverty. Also categorical eligibility here, which is fairly broad. Um, so the households enrolled in SNAP, Medicaid, federal public housing assistance, SSI, WIC, or Lifeline, like we just talked about, um, certain tribal programs. And then if anyone in the household is approved to receive free or reduced price school lunch or breakfast, that would qualify you. Um, if anyone in the household is a Pell Grant recipient, that would also qualify you. And then if you're participating in an internet provider's low income program, that would also uh, qualify you. And then I will hand it back to Ria who will talk about our universal service program. If I can just interrupt before we go back to Ria, this is Kelly. I'm gonna launch the first of the two CLE poll boxes for CLE credits for this session. Attorneys, you must respond to both questions in order to receive credit, and the poll will stay up for two minutes. And Rhea, please feel free to continue now. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Lauren. And before we take us into universal service programs, I wanted to just uh, mention or reemphasize uh, that Lifeline is a program that very much predated uh, the COVID-19 relief, and ACP has really uh, been put in place as kind of the uh, 
uh, next iteration of the EBB program, which some of you might be aware of. So in terms of uh, temporariness or changes, I uh, wanted to give you guys a little information about that. So next, let's talk about universal service programs. And we're going to be talking about a number of big buckets of these universal service programs. Now, two things I want to make you guys aware of at the outset of the conversation of this section. Number one is that the a default in the conversation that we're going to be having is uh, towards those regulated utilities. So again, as, as Lauren mentioned, uh, there is uh, many unregulated utilities throughout Pennsylvania, but uh, by and large, unless I specify otherwise, we're going to be talking about those larger utilities, those regulated utilities under the jurisdiction of the Pennsylvania Utility Commission. The uh, second caveat uh, or kind of uh, explanation taking us into this section is really that uh, these programs are going to be highly or at least moderately, I should say, uh, utility specific. So some of the eligibility criteria and some of the uh, lines and maximums we're going to be talking about throughout this conversation uh, are going to vary. And I'll try to point that out as I'm going. But uh, the uh, advocacy tip here is look at the individual utility, contact them, see what their individual program parameters are. You go to the next slide. Thank you. So first big bucket of uh, you, uh, universal service programs we're going to be talking about are customer assistance programs, otherwise known as CAPS. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, you're going to be seeing these um, most likely by and large with those regulated uh, utilities. So those larger utilities under the jurisdiction of the PUC. So what are CAPS? Essentially, CAPS are uh, low-income assistance programs that provide reduced rates or uh, lower monthly payments. In addition, um, many CAPS, you're also going to see some kind of arrearage management. So essentially what happens is when the person enters the CAP program, their past due balances, which we call arrearages in our world, are uh, frozen. And the person over a period of time, if they continue to make payments within the CAP, can earn forgiveness uh, over a, a specific amount of time, the length of which is going to vary by the utility. So uh, again, check the specific utility uh, rules to learn what those periods of time are. So some of the eligibility requirements that we see time and time again, and these are again, just general rules uh, for cap eligibility is a lot of times, many times we'll see the annual gross uh, household income is going to be capped at 150% or below. Some utilities, though this is becoming more rare, still require a payment trouble showing, and uh, again, check with the individual utilities exactly what uh, that uh, means in terms of that showing and if that showing still exists. For CAP, uh, a lot of utilities, most utilities require periodic income verification. And this essentially means that every so often the person has to recertify into CAP and show their household size and their income level to uh, show that they still qualify under that FPL limit. And there's often uh, sometimes uh, issues in terms of documentation and things like that. So if you're running into issues with that, please let us know and we're happy to provide some um, information or assistance potentially around that as well. Depending on uh, what kind of populations you're working with, this can be also a very, very important rule. While uh, the utilities may ask for social security numbers, it's not required. Now, this might 
be obvious sometimes and not obvious other times, right? So sometimes uh, this can absolutely stand in the way of someone enrolling in CAP if it's not obvious from the person's conversation that uh, they're not required to provide that social security number. It sometimes does take a little bit of advocacy to really figure out what those alternate means are, uh, but uh, just be required of that general or aware, I should say, of that general rule. So next big bucket is going to be hardship funds. So what are hardship funds first? So it's really cash grants through utilities. The maximum grant amount is going to vary by utility. We uh, give the example here of $500. It's one we've seen in uh, different circumstances with different utilities. Uh, and uh, keep in mind, there might be a showing that the person has to use the funds essentially to resolve the crisis. Now, hearkening back to my conversation about LIHEAP, remember that funds don't exist in a vacuum. So it's less likely, at least from the populations we've worked with, that the person has uh, available funds just by themselves, but potentially coupled with either LIHEAP funds or, um, you know, potentially funds from some of the other sources that Lauren's been talking about. It can essentially be coupled and kind of put together to meet that showing. So. Let's talk about some of the eligibility requirements under hardship funds. And again, this is big bucket, general, check with your specific utilities. So a lot of times we'll see a 200% FPL or below, that's going to be that FPL line. Sometimes it's going to be up to 300% FPL. Again, check with your individual utility. Um, it, there is a requirement that we sometimes see for what we call a good faith payment. So essentially over the last X number of months, again, X being whatever the utility has, be it three or something else, the person has paid a certain amount towards their utility account that the utility calls either a recent payment or a good faith payment. And this can absolutely stand as a barrier to a person getting in a hardship fund. Um, and depending on if they can potentially qualify for other funding sources, it could potentially uh, overcome this, but really check the program rules to see what can qualify as that good faith payment, whether it has to be uh, a specific funding source or the person's own funds. Some utilities, though this is becoming um, a, a little less rare, is uh, or a little more rare, I should say, uh, do require a showing of temporary hardship. Uh, and um, again, check the specific utility rules about what specifically this might mean. Uh, luckily, um, there has been some advocacy around this recently as well. And at the top of the slide, I mentioned, uh, you know, some hardship funds, uh, in order to get them, you have to resolve the crisis. So sometimes this does take a little bit of creativity in order to figure out what funds you can couple together to meet this. And, um, you know, let us know if um, you need more information about any of the funding sources we've been talking about. All right, next big bucket. Let's talk about low income usage reduction programs, otherwise known as liar programs. Liar programs are really geared towards helping households energy usage and energy efficiency, specifically to also help the household uh, hopefully get their bill amounts lessened to help them keep up with payments and help them stay connected to services. So uh, what happens? Essentially, there's an energy audit. And in the age of COVID, sometimes we've seen some virtual audits as well. But either way, there's some kind of energy audit. And then uh, the utility can recommend an appropriate energy conservation measures. Now, this can run a little bit of a gamut in terms of how durable, how, uh, uh, I, I guess, how uh, high grade the measures that are recommended and ultimately installed are. It can be um, things like uh, LEDs, so lights, power strips, but it can also be you know, high energy uh, or high efficiency refrigerators, heating system upgrades, appliance insulation and weatherization services. So uh, it, 
LIARP services, especially when coupled with some of these other energy efficiency programs that we've mentioned during this presentation or potentially that the utility has uh, available, uh, can help to bridge some of the gaps with energy needs and efficiency needs in the household. So let's talk about a little bit about uh, eligibility criteria for LIARP. So it's going to, again, be a check with your individual utility situation, but we often see a household income is going to be capped at 150% to 200% FPL. Again, this is going to be utility dependent. Uh, a lot of flyer programs either have some kind of high usage showing or they prioritize certain high usage customers. Uh, and again, check with the utility on what those numbers look like specific to the utility. In the case of tenants, and Lauren's going to be talking a lot later in this presentation specifically about tenants' rights and tenants' access to uh, services, uh, check with uh, the utility in terms of landlord approval requirements, because especially uh, for these more um, durable measures, but even for some of these lesser measures, a lot of utilities will require some form of landlord approval, which depending on how um, how responsive a landlord might be, might be more difficult or less difficult. And Lauren's going to be sharing her insights related to, to that in a few slides as well. Be aware, depending on what utility you're looking at as well, there might be a requirement that CAP customers are actually required to participate in LIARP. So especially if you're working with someone uh, on CAP applications and really walking them through some of that uh, program parameters, that's something good to know to keep them on CAP as well. All right, let's talk about CARES. So I often say CARES is uh, often forgotten within the suite of universal service programs. And I, I think that is uh, a misstep because I think CARES can be absolutely crucial and helpful to a lot of customers. So what is CARES? So CARES is a program uh, within utility, again, utility specific, designed for customers who are having trouble paying their bills and are having short-term problems that are causing their inability to pay. CARES is going to offer several services. So it can include more wraparound services, including referrals to social service agencies, budget counseling, as well as potentially special arrangement for bill payment. And I often recommend uh, CARES as a especially powerful tool for uh, victims of domestic violence or if you're working with other uh, vulnerable customer populations to keep CARES in mind uh, because the utility does ultimately have wide discretion to resolve uh, customer issues and CARES can help with bridging some of that gap as well. So uh, in line with our giving you updates during this presentation, uh, kind of mindset, we wanted to provide you some recent updates to universal service programs. And some of these are in flux. There's some litigation that's going on that's pending. So uh, some of them are a little more vague and some of them are a little more set, but I just wanted to give you guys a, a heads up about some of these. So first, decay and light. Again, all of these are gonna be those larger regulated utilities has expanded their hardship fund eligibility up to 300% FPL. And that's going to last through the end of 2023. So customers who might be on that borderline who might not otherwise be eligible might be able to receive hardship funds during that time. So um, Aqua, uh, very much still in flux, but keep an eye out. There might be some improvements to cap uh, of 
programs. There might be some improvements to hardship grant levels. Uh, again, this is something that's still uh, within kind of the auspices and still being looked at at the commission level. So we can't provide you any definitive updates, but stay tuned for some potentially expanded benefits. So Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority, PWSA, uh, out in the West. So there has been some increases to the discount. So PWSA has uh, a structure where essentially they have a fixed charge and then they have a usage charge above that. So uh, there's been an increase to uh, that fixed charge portion discount for uh, those uh, build discount program uh, customers. Who, so those uh, customers who receive that discounted rate uh, uh, to 100% the fixed charge, which equates to about $27 per month. For those customers who are at the bottom of the poverty tier, so 50% FPL and below, there's an additional 50% uh, discount off that usage, that volumetric charge I just mentioned. There's also a rearage forgiveness program component that has a flat uh, discount for payments uh, made, uh, the customer makes, I should say, while they're enrolled in that uh, a AFP or uh, program. And there's been some uh, uh, improvements to that good faith payment effort requirement for PWSA for hardship funds. So uh, some recent improvement changes as a result of some advocacy by uh, a number of parties. And then PA American Waters, very much still in flux with some of this. There uh, potentially could be uh, some uh, a rearage management plan on the horizon, it's still under consideration, as well as a recent rate increase or recent rate case improvements, I should say, to uh, areas of uh, tenant rights, uh, victims of domestic violence, specifically how they navigate the utility and how they get assistance, as well as how those customers who have limited English proficiency uh, can navigate the system. So like I said, some of this is still in flux, but we're keeping an eye out and there could be some uh, additional help on the horizon depending on how things work out. Great um, and I just wanted to add to that really quickly you'll notice that the the gas and electric seem to have much more well established um, universal service programs because that is what the regulations require and um, water is getting there so you'll probably see more, more development in the water space in the near future. Um, and I am going to talk about termination and reconnection processes. Um, so this is just some general advice. When you have a client who calls and, you know, you ask or they mention like, oh, gosh, I'm also behind on this. I'm behind on this. You know, it, our first when we get a call to the hotline, my first question is always, well, have you reached out to the utility? Because that's always your first step. Um, it can be very tempting to ignore these bill amounts, especially as they get higher and higher. Um, but it's always better long-term to keep in communication with the utility rather than just ignore the problem. Um, I also will always recommend pay what you can when you can to establish a positive payment history. So, you know, a lot of people, we'll talk about payment arrangements in a little bit here, but, you know, sometimes the only option that people realistically have to maintain their service, at least in the short term, is to enter into a payment arrangement. Payment arrangements can be tricky because you're still responsible for paying your monthly usage, Plus now you're also adding to that bill amount to pay off a past due balance. So it's difficult, right? Like if you're in a position where you've already gotten behind, you know, having to pay more going forward in order to catch up is going to be really tough. So even if you cannot make those full payment arrangement amounts, it's very important to continue to make payments as you can. Um, that 
when then you have to go to the utility and try to negotiate another payment arrangement or a hold on or account hold on an account or something like that, it is much, much easier to do if there's a regular payment history for that customer. Um, also, always recommend that if someone is low income, especially if they're below that 250 uh, federal poverty level um, amount for uh, the winter moratorium, that they contact the utility and provide their income information. That's sort of also generally step number one. Um, apply for all available assistance programs. So that's everything we've talked about already. So that's LIHEAP, it's LIWAP, it's uh, ERAP, it's HALF, it's you know any anything that is available and apply and, and um, that your client would be eligible for. Um, you can also determine whether any special protections apply, and we'll talk about these in a little more detail, but medically vulnerable consumers, victim of, victims of domestic violence, and tenants. Um, there are specific provisions for these um, more vulnerable groups. You can request an affordable payment arrangement. We will talk about affordability and payment arrangements in a couple slides here. Um, and then uh, filing a dispute with the utility or the public utility commission, um, both Rhea and I will touch on that in a little more detail. And as a last resort to seek bankruptcy, if you just cannot cobble together enough to get your service maintained, this may be your best last option. Um, and Lauren, so term, before yes. we move on to the next slide, I realize there has been a question and I just wanted to address that. Sure. Uh, Seamus Brennan, he's asking, is there any access for either LIHEAP or universal service programs when bill is generated by sub-metering? And uh, you've been doing a, a, some work around this, so <laughs> I don't know question. whether you want to take the first <laughs> shot at this, Lauren. Um, well, the answer as every is the answer to everything is, is it depends. Um, it depends on whether it's a submetering company or whether it's the utility itself that has submetered a building. Um, I, and we have step in when I put her out here, but I, you need to determine who is the, who is the, for LIHEAP, do they have a home heating responsibility, right? And if someone is paying, even if it's an undesignated portion of their rent, if they are paying for heat, Generally, they may qualify for LIHEAP, although it may be a lesser amount. Um, and then again, I think it's going to go back to submetering is complicated because it can be done in a lot of different ways. But ultimately, it's going to go back to does that person is that person a customer of the utility? Is that bill in their name? If it is, then they're then they may be if they're otherwise eligible, may be able to get into those universal service programs that the utilities run. Um, for grant funding, it doesn't need to be quite as strict. They don't necessarily need to have the bill in their name, but they would need to show that they have a home heating responsibility in order to be eligible for those programs. Yeah, and I think Lauren hit it on the head when she basically said that it's complicated. It is very complicated in terms of uh, utility assistance when there is a sub-metering. Uh, yeah kind of situation either by the utility itself or especially if it's a third party submetering uh, company. And what I, I would say is there there's a lot of times and there are circumstances where, uh, especially for universal service programs that the customer might or the uh, customer of the submetering company, I guess, might not be eligible for some of those programs. Right. And what I would say is for anyone on this call who's running into issues or having questions specifically um, related to utilities uh, under submetering uh, 
companies or submitted even by the utility, please do let us know because absolutely it's complicated. There's a lot of nuances uh, that require different levels and layers of um, legal analysis that uh, we might be hopefully be able to provide you some direction. I was gonna, we can try. To. We are happy to try, <laughs> but I think submetering is sort of a gray area. So there's, it's, you know, in a lot of these situations, there really aren't bright lines yet. So yeah, but definitely reach out. Thank you, Ria, for, for bringing that up. Um, so termination rules. So no Friday terminations or weekends. So um, that means that terminations may only occur Monday through Thursday. Um, I will say shutoff notices are generally speaking are um, automatically generated. So sometimes people will get shutoff notices where the shutoff date is a Friday. They will not be shut off on a Friday. If they are, they should go immediately to the Public Utility Commission and file a complaint. Um, and people can be terminated for several reasons. Non-payment of an undisputed delinquent account. We will talk, I believe, on the next slide. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about undisputed versus disputed delinquent accounts on the next slide here. But so for non-payment, you know you owe it, you haven't paid your bill, you know you owe the money, they can terminate your service for that. Um, failure to either comply with the terms of the payment agreement, that just means you know you have entered into a payment arrangement and you have missed some payments. Um, you haven't completed your security deposit. Uh, we will talk in detail about security deposits. Um, or you have failed to permit access to equipment. So that could be having something parked in front of a curb stop. It could be you know, unsafe conditions to try to get to an interior exterior meter. Those are sorts of things that you could be shut off for as well. Um, notice requirements, so at least 10 days before termination, um, you will get something in the mail. If, for example, the one the termination notices that are going out now are for primarily April 4th, um, that notice is effective for 60 days, so up until about May 4th. So just because they don't shut you off on that one day doesn't mean that they're not going to show up at some point in the next you know, two months. Um, and then prior to three days prior to termination, the utility has to attempt to contact customer in person by phone or electronically through email or text. So that's personal contact is not in person necessarily. It can be person, phone, electronically. Generally, when people set up their accounts, there's a little checkbox that you know they'll that they accept. Um, they consent to receiving electronic notifications. Um, and then there's the last knock rule where the utility has to attempt personal contact at the residence immediately prior to termination. So, you know, a field worker comes to the property to shut off whatever the utility is. They're required to attempt to make personal contact at the residence. I will say I have maybe had one or two clients that are like, oh, yeah, he knocked on my door. Like, I you know, it's something that has to happen. How often it does happen, I, you know, that's sort of a, a practicality versus what the rules actually say situation. Um, and I will actually, before I move on, so for the last, the, the purpose of the last knock rule is because there are ways that um, customers can um, prevent termination even at that very late point. If someone in the house has a uh, medical condition that they require, um, for example, you need your refrigerator to keep your insulin cool or you need electricity for a nebulizer because someone in the house has asthma. These are very common conditions. Um, you know, you can inform the field worker at that point. You can make a payment at that point. Um, 
uh, you can, and we'll talk more about PFAs and things in a minute here, but you know, that that's why that last knock rule is important because there are ways that customers have the right to prevent a termination, even at that point. Um, so payment arrangements. So payment arrangements um, are agreements where the customer who admits liability, so remember this is undisputed, you know you have not paid your bill and you know what on your bill is electricity or gas or water that you have actually used, um, you can spread that amount out over time um, to prevent a termination. Don't admit liability unless you know what you owe. Uh, this comes up in multi-unit tenant buildings fairly often um, where you know, your bill maybe is three times higher than your next door neighbor and you don't know why. Maybe there is a foreign load. Maybe you're paying for some common space usage. If you think that is a situation, do not agree to a payment arrangement for that amount if you do not think you owe it. And I know we say here, do not agree to a payment arrangement that you cannot afford to pay. I don't know that most people can afford to pay payment arrangements because again, it is increasing your bill amount. So, you know, be realistic about it. Um, the utilities have the discretion to offer as many payment arrangements as they want for any amount of time. Will they do that? No. Most commonly, they will stick to what they're required to do by the commission, but just know they can. They can extend it out for three years, five years. Um, they can offer as many as they want, but what they're required to do is slightly different. So um, what they're required to do is at 150% federal poverty or below, the utility um, can give you up, can give the client up to 36 months um, to pay off that amount. So spread it out over three years. And then as income goes up, the length of time goes down. So that's for utility issued payment arrangements. Again, they have, you know, they have the discretion to be more generous than that. Um, but and there were some provisions during COVID a couple, you know, within the last year and a half or so where they were offering up to five years for basically everyone. Um, and that is no longer. So utility issued. There are also um, commission issued payment arrangements, public utility commission. Um, so for current customers, so that's someone that you either have active service or you've been shut off within the last 30 days, you're still considered a current customer. Um, you if you're under 150% federal poverty level, you can get that up to five-year payback time frame through the commission, not through the utility itself, probably, but through the commission. Um, but the commission cannot require a utility to enter into another payment arrangement unless there are extraordinary circumstances. So typically speaking, if you have a client who has had broken payment arrangements, and again, a lot of people do, and they may not know that they do, right? Because they're doing what they need to do at the time to keep their service on, and you know they may not remember that they entered into a payment arrangement and then got shut off because of that. And you know, so it's it's you have you have to ask because you can't guarantee that oh just call the commission and they'll give you this five years. They're not required to do that, and the utility isn't required to accept that um, if there are previous broken payment arrangements in the payment history. Restoration payment arrangements. So this is if your service is um, it has been off for more than 30 days, which means you are not technically a current customer, you're, you're an applicant um, and you're trying to reconnect at the same address, there will be a reconnection fee um, and uh, you get up to only two years. So again, this is, we see this with gas fairly frequently that people the um, will just, will opt to not pay their gas bill over the summer because they don't need the heat. 
and then try to get reconnected when it starts to get cold. Well, they're not a current customer anymore because they've been off for several months. So they can't get the, you know, a, a longer payment arrangement. They're sort of restricted to that 24 months. Um, and they can't necessarily, there's other, other, some other restrictions around like medical certs and things like that. But, um, you know, if they're, if you're off for several months, you, you're sort of, you're in a, in a slightly more difficult situation to get restored. Um, exceptions to those payment arrangement rules that we just talked about, where you may have a little more flexibility. Um, anyone with a uh, PFA, a, a protection from abuse, or, or another order that shows clear evidence of domestic abuse, it can be uh, custody related or something like that, um, that they, the utility can, um, can set up a payment arrangement over a reasonable period of time. So basically it's just removing those, you know, 24 months, 36 months, and just saying, you know, what is reasonable given the situation, the size of the unpaid balance, the situation of the applicant, payment history of the applicant, and the length of time over which the bill accumulated. So there's more detail there in uh, section 56.285 um, regarding the specific exceptions around people who have a PFA or other order. Um, Another exception to payment arrangements, which is, is tough, is cap arrears. So if you enroll in cap, and let's say you fall behind on your cap payments, any amount that you owe from when you enrolled in the program to whenever you get a shutoff notice, that amount, because they are in called in-program arrears, that will prevent the um, PUC from giving you a payment arrangement. So if you owed $10,000 that got frozen and then you fell behind $500 on your cap payments, you're not gonna be able to get a payment arrangement from the PUC. Again, the utility has the latitude to decide what they wanna do, but the PUC is not required to give you that payment arrangement. Um, but that customer applicant should be able to pay just that, what we call the catch-up amount, so just the in-program arrears in order to get reinstated and get back in good, in good graces with the program. And that whole, whatever amount they had frozen won't necessarily all come due. Um, so the goal is to get enrolled in CAP and stay enrolled in CAP. So um, strategies for preventing termination. Again, we talked about a lot of these sort of in order. <laughs> um, best case scenario is usually to enroll in CAP, especially for someone who has not been enrolled before. If they have a past due debt, it's going to get frozen. They're going to get a bill discount and they're going to be in much better condition going forward. And that past due debt will get forgiven over time. And again, you want to stack as much as you can. So LIHEAP, ERAP, HALF, as much as you can get in one chunk, the better. Um, if that doesn't take care of the problem, payment arrangements are an option. Um, and then again, additional protections for people with a protection from abuse or other court order. Um, if uh, debt was accrued in someone else's name, even if the person with the PFA was living in the home at the time, that person cannot be held accountable for the debt accrued in someone else's name if they have the PFA. So the timelines are important here. So that's something you wanna look into is, you know, when were you living with this person? You know, when was the bill in their name? When was the bill in your name? When did, you know, when did they vacate the premises? Um, those are sort of the questions that you wanna look at. Um, but again, the people could be eligible for longer payment arrangements, additional notices. Um, medical certificates, if someone has a medical condition that requires use of electricity or heat or water, um, 
they can, with the regulated utilities, they can um, get their doctor's office, if, if they will, some will, some won't, to submit a medical certificate to the utility. It's just a pretty basic form. Um, the utility doesn't get to decide <laughs> whether it's a valid medical issue or not. That's up to the doctor's office. Um, and in that case, without, if the customer pays nothing at all, they can still renew that two more times, I believe in the course of a year. So they get up to 90 days. If you're getting those med certs and you continue to pay your current charges, so you're paying your actual usage every month and submitting a med cert every month, you cannot be shut off for past due debt. We sort of use those as a last resort because again, you have to pay those current charges and those current charges can be unaffordable for some people. The winter moratorium we talked about, again, if, if the client has not reported their income to the utility and they get shut off, if they call and report their income, that may not get them turned back on. It'll depend on the situation. I mean, it's ask, but it may not, it's not necessarily gonna get it done. Um, then the four-year rule. So if someone's trying to establish service or is being terminated for a old debt, if that debt is more than four years old, that cannot form the basis of termination. So again, that's a that's an asking questions thing, right? You wanna know, okay, well, when did you last have service in your name? Normally this comes up when someone's trying to establish service at a new residence and maybe they lived with someone else or you know, they moved back with their parents or whatever it was, they didn't have service in their name for a period of a few years. If they have older past due debt, that can't prevent them from, if it's older than four years, from reestablishing service in their own name in their own place. Um, we'll talk about tenants' rights coming up here. And then Rhea will talk about the dispute process um, with the commission in a little bit. So connecting, reconnecting to service. Um, the utility may charge a security deposit. The customer can be charged up to one-sixth of the estimated annual bill, so about two months worth. Um, they can provide, the utilities have to provide 90 days to to pay the full deposit. So how they'll normally split it up is you pay half of it in that first bill and then a quarter in the next bill and then a quarter in the next bill. Um, once the customer establishes a uh, timely payments by paying in full and on time for 12 consecutive months, um, the deposit uh, needs to be returned to that customer. And I think it depends on the utility. I think some um, credit the account, some may send a check. I think it may vary from utility to utility. There are exceptions to having to pay a security deposit if you are cap eligible. So if your income is at 150% federal poverty or below, um, you will have to provide proof of income for that, but um, that would get the security deposit waived. Again, um, you do not have to enroll in cap in order to get that waived, but you just have to be cap eligible. And then um, also if you have, again, a PFA or other order, if you're not low income, um, you can get that waived if you can establish credit worthiness. So whether that's you know a W two, you have you know, steady employment, or past residences, uh, letters of reference. Um, you know if you have a, a former landlord that was you know cooperative with you and would say like yep you know they paid their rent on time, you know that that may help establish your credit worthiness or a third party guarantor. So basically a, like a cosigner. And Lauren, we've had a question around med certs from mm -hmm. Joanna. What I would say is, Joanna, we're going to be going into med certs in a few slides, a little more detail, and I'll address this question. Yeah, I'm sorry. I sort of blew through it, but yeah, we'll, um, we'll cover that in more detail. And then again, a, a lot of this we've covered, but again, strategies for connecting and reconnecting service. Um, 
just remember that if someone is cap eligible, if they're below that 150 income level, they um, that they can get that security deposit waived, but they would have to require uh, would have to provide proof of income. Um, additional protections for people with a PFA um, can't charge the victim arrears accrued in someone else's name, even if they lived at the residence when the arrears were accrued. Again, you want to do ask some questions, figure out your timeline, see if that would apply. Um, and then, you know, you can ask flexible payment arrangements um, from the utilities. The four-year rule, arrears more than four years old, can't be required to, um, to be paid in order to establish service. Uh, Utility-issued payment arrangements, again, they have broad discretion. Do they use it? It really depends. But, you know, having a positive payment history, even if you're still behind, you know, those, it's that kind of thing that helps, that is, makes the utility more likely to give you another payment arrangement. Um, if you can't get, a, you uh, can't get a payment arrangement from the utility, you can go to the PUC. Not a guarantee there, but it's, you know, again, it is an avenue for you. And then the PUC issued payment arrangements to restore service. Again, if you're between 150 and 300% FPL, uh, you get up to one year to spread out that debt over one year. And then if you're below 150% FPL, it's 24 months. And again, that's if you were off for more than 30 days. Um, if you have defaulted on one or more or on two or more arrangements for the same balance, the PUC is not going to issue you another payment arrangement. And unfortunately, you know, if if someone cannot afford to pay their bills, they cannot afford to pay their bills. And so I say I have, I would say the people that call our hotline most often have at least one broken payment arrangement in the past, whether they are cognizant of it or not. So, you know, it's a good question to ask, but don't be surprised if you send someone to the PUC and they come back and say, no, I'm not, you know, they said no. Maybe because they have broken payment arrangements in their past that they're not entirely aware of. And I will pass it to Ria. Thanks, Lauren. And next, we're going to be talking about special protections for utility customers. And we're going to be talking about a few different subsets, which if we can go to the next slide, it should be listed. Thank you. So first, we're going to be talking a little bit more in depth about uh, protection for victims against, of domestic violence. And we're also going to be talking in more depth about customers who have serious illness or medical conditions and need to take um, uh, take advantage of those medical certificates. So, and then Lauren will be talking a little bit more about tenant protection. So first, let's talk about some additional protections for victims of domestic violence. And Lauren's alluded to a lot of these before, so I just wanted to take us through the complete list. So the caveat to all of this is that this is going to apply to those victims of domestic violence, those survivors who have a, a copy and can provide a copy of a PFA or other court order showing clear evidence of domestic violence. Now, uh, what this means in terms of other court order uh, can become a little bit tricky, can be a little confusing. Um, and the one thing I would say is if there's a question or you guys have a question around that, please let us know. Uh, this can include a number of different kinds of court orders, including criminal charging orders, things like that. Uh, but it does need to show clear evidence of domestic violence. So uh, for a victim of domestic violence who has a PFA or other court order, uh, like Lauren mentioned, they cannot be terminated for uh, non-payment uh, that's furnished essentially in a third party's name. So uh, they uh, cannot be charged specifically for arrears accrued in someone else's name, even if they lived at the residence while their arrears were accrued. And especially for uh, 
victims who were co-residing with their abusers, this can be an especially important rule. As Lauren's also alluded to, there might be more flexible payment arrangements that are offered to uh, victims who have those court orders that they can provide. It's going to be uh, dependent on the individual facts and circumstances of their cases, depending on what kind of payment arrangements uh, they're going to be offered. And then the other kind of protection we wanted to highlight here for victims of domestic violence is specifically related to that last knock rule. And again, uh, for that last knock rule that Lauren's already kind of told you about, uh, there does have to be an attempt at personal contact immediately preceding termination. Now, the key word in this sentence is attempt. So um, for victims who have these uh, qualifying court orders or PFAs, if there's no personal contact, notice has to be posted at the property and termination is delayed for that additional 48 hour period. So it essentially allows some additional time prior to termination uh, because um, the, uh, if that last talk essentially isn't complete. So medical certificates, once again, uh, a household may obtain a medical certificate to stop termination if a household member has a serious illness or medical condition which requires utility service to treat their illness. Uh, we've given you two examples here. First, asthma that requires air conditioning in the summer, diabetes that requires refrigeration of a medication. Now, uh, as Lauren's already mentioned, uh, the medical professional, uh, so either primary care or another medical professional that the customer uh, is able to access it really does decide whether uh, the medical certificate uh, gets filled out and to the extent uh, of the affliction and the length of the affliction and really whether uh, that person qualifies for that medical certificate. Now, uh, there are, uh, as we've mentioned, certain caveats for medical certificates. Medical certificates stop termination for 30 days. It does not take care of that underlying debt. So a customer may submit a new certificate every 30 days if they pay the current charges by the due date. A customer may renew a medical certificate up to two times. So that's 90 days of protection total, even if they don't pay that current charges. Uh, so uh, keep in mind for customers, especially uh, if they're unable to keep up with those charges, there is that cap at those two times. So that 90 days of protection. There's been some um, recent updates and recent uh, changes in terms of uh, commission policy related to medical certificates. Uh, so for those of you who are looking some, for some more in-depth information related to those, please feel free to reach out to us. I also did want to address Joanna's question specifically to um, medical certificates. Are the medical certificates per year or per delinquent um, amount if a customer doesn't pay? Now, um, my understanding, though Lauren can correct me, uh, it, based on her experience with the Healthline, is that it is that per delin delinquent amount that we're seeing. So uh, it's not necessarily a time cap uh, on those medical certificates. Yeah, I believe that's right. And also that if, just to reiterate, if you, if they've been off for more than 30 days, the MedCert is not going to get their service restored. Right. And in terms of that longitudinal look, again, I'll emphasize that medical certificates really don't take care of the arrearage amount. So that underlying amount as well, which does require some of these additional tools uh, that might be helpful to resolve some of that as well. And then Lauren's going to take us a little more through tenant protections before we talk about disputes. So um, tenant protections are complicated. <laughs> the um, 
So there are these sort of twin statutes here. One, uh, Ustra covers unregulated utilities. So, you know, municipal water authorities, electric co-ops, things like that. Um, and uh, DSLPA, Discontinuance of Service to Lease Premises Act, um, applies to uh, regulated utilities, but the protections in both are, are pretty are, are pretty similar. Um, so basically when, when this would come into play is when the utility company is going to terminate utility service to a lease premises due to non-payment by the landlord ratepayer or because the landlord voluntarily basically calls the utility and requests that service be shut off. So you have the two circumstances. One, the landlord isn't paying the bill that they're supposed to pay, or two, the landlord requests that the service be shut off to the unit. Um, generally speaking, um, in order for these to apply, the landlord is the utility's name customer, meaning that the bill is in the, is in the landlord's name. Because if the bill is in the tenant's name, the tenant is then a customer of the utility and has you know, the rights and obligations of being a customer. Um, if they're not, then most likely their protections are going to be under either Ustra or DSLPA. Um, so under Ustra, so for unregulated utilities, it doesn't matter whether the lease says that the bill is the tenant's responsibility. Um, under DSLPA, the landlord has to be responsible for service under the terms of the lease. However, um, an oral lease is a lease. So there's no requirement to produce a written lease. Obviously you run into enforcement problems um, with this, but those are, you know, that is what the rules, are. those are what the rules are. Um, the tenant took possession while the utility service was active. So basically you rented a place with electric service. So that's part of the terms of the lease. Um, and the, the proposed, like I mentioned at the beginning there, the proposed termination of service is due to either non-payment by the landlord or voluntary requests, um, like, you know, like a constructive eviction. We'll talk about that in a minute here. Um, circumstances where these would not apply, for example, or if there are unsafe conditions, um, if, uh, if a field worker is coming to read the meter and can't get safely to the, to the meter, if there are need for repairs, um, any evidence of meter tampering, in those cases, you know, then you're dealing with that specific situation. You're not dealing with rights under Ustra or DSLPA. Um, so if a utility is uh, knows that a unit is reasonably likely to be occupied by an affected tenant um, of the proposed discontinuance, they have to notify the unit at least 30 days before any discontinuance of service. So again, you're not talking about mailing a shutoff notice to the billing address, you're talking about mailing you know, the shutoff notice to the actual residence. Um, reasonably likely to be occupied. So one, um, one clue would be if the billing address is not the same as the service address, that would be a clear indication that this may very well be a rental unit. Um, I have had a few clients where the, in both regulated un, and, and unregulated utilities, that the utility, whether they should have been aware or not, were not aware, they had it basically indicated in their system wrong that it was owner-occupied, not tenant-occupied. So, you know, usually if you run into an issue around utility service for tenants, First thing to do is reach out to the utility and make sure the utility knows that this is a tenant occupied property because then different rules will apply. Um, so if your landlord has stopped paying the bill or has requested that service be shut off, 
the tenant has rights. They can pay um, an equal amount. They can pay last 30 days charges, so their actual usage while living in the place, in order to restore their, in order to maintain their service. And they can do this without putting service in their name, without becoming a, a customer of the utility. They can just continue to pay their regular usage to maintain their service. Um, and that applies, that, that's pretty much the same um, protections that you have under Austria and under DSLPA. Um, so uh, payments have to be made within 30 days of the delivery of the notice to the tenant. So this notice that we talked about in the top bullet here, um, once that notice goes on the door, the tenant has 30 days to make that payment if the landlord doesn't to uh, maintain service. You know, and, and remedies, um, the tenant has the right to deduct payments from rent owed. Um, I, when I have clients who want to do this or should be doing this, I refer them to their local legal aid because this is not my area of expertise. Um, so certainly they have the right to do it. Of course, this opens them up to, you know, eviction for non-payment. So, you know, again, that's, you know, guidance that I, I will send, you know, I send back on to the landlord tenant attorneys out there. Um, retaliation by the landlord is prohibited. So if the landlord's trying to get the tenant out by turning off the water and the tenant is able to maintain service and stay in the place by paying those paying that each 30 days. Um, you know, any retaliation by the landlord for doing that would be prohibited. Um, it's essentially a constructive eviction, right? Um, so any protections that apply for um, proper eviction procedures would also apply under these circumstances. Um, and then tenants cannot waive these rights in their leases. Um, I'm sure there are leases out there that attempt to waive these rights. These are non-waivable non rights. And then um, landlords, again, similar to not paying or requesting the service be turned off, landlords who tamper or cut the lines um, is, this is basically an illegal lockout or a constructive eviction. Um, you may need to go to the Commonwealth Court to get an emergency injunction. Um, and it's helpful in a lot of cases you want to talk directly to the utility to find out who the name, you know, who is one that they didn't shut it off themselves for non-payment, in which case you should be covered under the under Austria or DSLPA that we talked about before. Um, so you do want to talk to the utility, make sure that they're not the ones that turned it off, or if they did turn it off, if you were supposed to get notice and didn't, you want to make sure that they know that so they can restore the service, give you the proper notice that they're supposed to have. Um, and plus, if the that if the landlord was the one that shut off the service, you're going to need that information to file your injunction. And then I will turn it back to Ria, who will talk about the dispute process. Thanks, Lauren. So we can go to the next slide and jump into uh, disputing a utility bill. And the first step is going to be go to the utility. So there's a number of reasons for this. First, utilities have broad discretion uh, when it comes to resolving utility matters, matters with their individual utility. Now, a uh, utility is also has an obligation to address disputes. Customers also have an obligation to give a utility to chance, a chance, I should say, to resolve a dispute before going to uh, the commission. So negotiation is required before filing a complaint. So some 
tips and uh, advocacy uh, kind of uh, notes we wanted to give you. As I've mentioned, utilities do have broad discretion when resolving these customer disputes. Uh, we do require, or I should say, we do recommend that utilities um, kind of when approaching them, I should say, that you start by asking the utility to review the account. And there's a number of reasons for this. First, uh, the customer might not know specifically uh, what is in their individual bills or how uh, necessarily their rearages have come to be. So first, request uh, the utility report or the account report to review that. And really uh, be direct with the request. If uh, it turns out there is a dispute, we do recommend using the words, I am disputing, just to be clear, with whoever uh, you or the customer is talking about that there is a dispute on the table. And then if there's a termination pending, ask for a stay of termination to review the case. And um, the other uh, kind of tip here, very, very important is that uh, the customer must continue to pay any undisputed bills. Uh, so uh, specifically look at the portion that's in dispute and advise the customer accordingly to make sure that there's not another termination issue uh, that kind of has to be handled simultaneously. And then if uh, it turns out uh, advocacy through uh, the utility is not uh, working and a more uh, formal route is kind of required, uh, there is an informal complaint process as well as a formal complaint process before the commission. Now, the informal complaint process, and we've given you the number here, is going to be before BCS, which is the Bureau of Consumer Services. Now, uh, for filing an informal complaint, uh, in order for it to actually stop termination, it must be filed before the day of termination. So getting those informal complaints in, uh, in a timely manner is especially important. Uh, the other route is that formal complaint route, and this is uh, what uh, you might think of if you're thinking of uh, hearings before an ALJ. Uh, there is a decision that can be issued by the ALJ as well as uh, the chance and the ability to appeal uh, to the Commonwealth Court. So for those more formal complaint processes, uh, uh, a licensed attorney is required to represent clients before the commission, but uh, advocates and paralegals can refer a client to file pro se and provide information about their rights. So uh, if there's any questions about how to access these complaint processes, please do let us know and we'll uh, help you walk through some of those as well. So some resources and we've alluded to this throughout the presentation that we wanted to provide you. So uh, for consultants, so for advocates who are uh, facing a utility uh, issue or who uh, have questions about how any of this works, uh, feel free to use our group email. The secret, not so secret, is this actually gets to all of us. So you should get a response fairly quickly. And uh, then for a client so if there's an individual customer who's having a utility issue that you want to refer to us we have put our hotline number and email down here uh, and it is um, accessible uh, for again those customers directly so feel free um, as needed to use these resources uh, like i said we are here and available and eager to answer any questions yeah, and, and just another note, the hotline is open. Um, oh, you can always email, but the hotline is open um, Monday through Thursday. And we generally will get back, can't promise that, but we generally get back to people the same day. 
And again, if there's a more technical question, especially around some of these issues, I think um, other people have asked during this presentation, like sub-metering and things like that, uh, feel free to uh, use that email, that pulp email address, if you're looking for more technical assistance for more kind of tricky issues, because that, again, will get you to all of us. This is Kelly. I'm going to go ahead and launch. Oops. I'm going to launch the second CLE poll box now. I will leave this up for two minutes. Um, and I don't know if you want to ask for any questions that people might have now after they've um, completed the poll. But yes, that'll be great. And there's some resources on the next slide. We wanted to make sure we were getting out to people. Oh, I might have missed that. <laughs> so uh, I, I will say ahead of taking any additional questions uh, that uh, we have a number of um, resources available. Uh, we have one pagers. We have the LIHEAP Advocates Manual that we uh, help to uh, update every year. And what I'll go ahead and do is uh, drop the link to our utility assistance one pagers, which are utility specific and region specific in the chat. That way, oh, let me go ahead and make sure I'm getting it to everyone. That way uh, you guys can find our website and navigate some of the resources there. So is there any additional questions about anything Lauren or I have mentioned uh, throughout this presentation? Anything that you'd like uh, some more information on? We have a few more minutes left. There's a question in the chat here that I'll, I'll answer quickly. How do clients get the medical certificate? So they call their doctors, they're form for the doctor to complete. Yes, they should reach out directly to their doctor's office, whether it's their physician, physician's assistant, nurse practitioner. Um, it's a very straightforward form and the form will go directly from the doctor's office to the utility. So what the customer should do is tell the utility that they are intending on reaching out to the doctor's office, that gives them a few days. If they have an impending shutoff, it gives them, I think, three days. Um, and then they should call their doctor's office, request the medical certificate, tell them what utility it's for. Um, and then generally the, the doctor's office will get that directly to the utility. And there is a tricky part here, actually getting the person being able to contact their doctor within that kind of holding period that Lauren described. So sometimes we do run into uh, questions and concerns about being able to access those medical providers within that uh, set period of time, which might require some additional yeah. advocacy and help to clients. And it does, I mean, it, well. it definitely does. Like three days is not a lot of time to get a response from a doctor's office, especially when things are busy like they are now. And what I will say is look for uh, set forms for medical certificates, like uh, templates and medical certificate forms, because those might be helpful for doctors who are navigating the system and trying to get some of this information in as well. And for anyone looking for more information about that, let us know too. Yeah, and I, th I, think, the, I think on the commission website, I think there is a template that's recommended. The utilities don't have to use it. They can use their own, but I think there is a recommended one, I think. Yeah, there's some recommended language. What's actually accessible through utilities websites, it, it gets a little complicated and tricky. So um, again, let us know if anyone needs more information around this. We're happy to talk through all the nuances. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't hesitate to send an email to the pulp email if, uh, if something comes up, that's, we're happy to help. The stuff is complicated. <laughs>
and I'm not seeing any other questions. I'll, I'll give it a second as I'm thanking people just in case something comes through. But again, um, thank you all for being here today. It was great sharing some updates and information related to uh, what's going on in uh, Pennsylvania utility law and advocacy with you. Um, if there are any questions and anyone thinks of anything, feel free to drop us an email. And um, again, we're, we're here and available to assist. Yep. Thank you. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Rhea. Everybody have a good rest of the day. Take care. Thanks, everyone.